in the midst of the chaos of this year, and it has been a rather chaotic year, has it not? Um, not only have we had the Rona, there's been the, the uh, race riots in America and the Black Lives Matter movement, and of course all the fun and excitement of a, of a presidential election, and just the joy and the thrill that that has brought to us here, I'm sure. But in the midst of all of this, there's been one or two other things that, that have slipped by unnoticed, that in, an, in a normal year, in a usual year, would have been itself a major crisis. Have you heard of Marmageddon? Marmageddon. Not sure if you followed this. I don't care because I don't because I, I just don't like this stuff. But we nearly ran out of Marmite, <laughs> and it was labelled Marmageddon. I don't like smearing axle grease on my toast. But if that's what you want to do, go right ahead. Marmite lovers for months were not able to buy, but in particular, the larger jars of Marmite, and they, they are able to blame COVID, the pandemic. See, the, the makers of the yeast extract spread had to go into social media to explain what had happened. They said it was a temporary measure, um, but they had to stop production of most of the Marmite because um, for the last, the last few months have been really tough on them because they haven't been able to get any spent yeast, which is a key ingredient of Marmite. Uh, Mandy Murphy, who is the chief executive, says that the two key suppliers of yeast in South Africa, SA InBev and Heineken Breweries, have been shut down and not been able to operate. And because they're shut down, they haven't been able to produce yeast for Walmart. Yeast is a live product, you're not able to stockpile it, and so they've had to shut it down, but now that lockdown had eased by the end of September, beginning of October, uh, the breweries were able to get up to full capacity, and Marmite is now once again, thankfully, available on the shelves. Marmageddon averted. And if you were wondering, it didn't impact just us, apparently the UK were in the same state, simply could not get sufficient Marmite because the breweries had shut down. I actually read this a month and a half ago, and there was some rumor that the reason, one of the reasons that Marmite was in short supply was because of all the home brewers. All you guys that were making your pineapple beer, uh, <laughs> you know, follow my finger. Uh, <laughs> just, you know. Uh, but no, apparently not. Apparently that's not the case. It's not their fault. Yeast, so, so I mean, Marmite is made out of yeast. It's a yeast thing, and yeast is quite a fascinating thing. It's a fungus. So if you're wondering, you're spreading fungus on your toast. Uh, it takes 20 billion yeast cells to make one gram of yeast. And yeast, in order to grow, um, the cells digest the food and that generates energy. So with baking yeast, the yeast ferments uh, the sugars in the, in the flour and that releases carbon dioxide. And because the dough is elastic, there's nowhere for the carbon dioxide to go. And so that's why the gases inside your dough cause the dough to stretch and spread and rise. It's the expanding gas. Yeast, as you know, also in beer, eats the sugar, produces carbon dioxide and alcohol. My dad showed me something last night. 
where some guys have, instead of getting the yeast to produce carbon dioxide, have infused their beer with helium. <laughs> I don't know if it's true or not. I'm not sure if it's, I'm trying to investigate. Is it fake news because then they drink the beer and then they speak in that funny silly high voice that you with helium? So I, I don't know. <laughs> we know, of course, I'm sure, that you only need a little bit of yeast for the whole batch of dough. We, uh, from, well, when I say we, I mean my wife, quite often makes homemade pizza and she makes the dough and it's just a little bit of yeast in that dough and it's left in a corner in the dark, cover over it, and in a couple of hours it's risen and it's just wonderful stuff. Back in the, in, in the New Testament days when they made bread, they would mix the dough in, they'd make get the bread ready, and then break just a little bit off and keep it to one side, and they'd bake the bread, and then they'd eat the bread, and then tomorrow they'd bake more dough, and they'd take this little bit that they'd kept, and, and mix that back in, and let that rise, and then break a piece off, and bake the bread, eat the bread, make more dough, and then the bit that they broke off yesterday, they add back in, and apparently they keep doing this for like generations. So that yeast is just thousands of years old that's going in there, great stuff. And of course, the, the big story of yeast in the Bible has to go back to the, the Old Testament and the story of the Passover, which is the forerunner of, of communion and the Lord's Supper. Um, but you'll remember the story that the people of Israel are in a hurry, they need to leave in a rush, they don't have time. God says to them, you don't have time to add the yeast and put it in the corner and sit around and wait for the stuff to rise. So don't put yeast in it, just make it without yeast. And that led to the Passover festival where annually the Jewish people would gather and celebrate the Passover for a week. And for a whole week there was not allowed to be any yeast in the house. And so at the beginning of Passover, even today, Jewish people go around the house and they take their Marmite and they throw it away. <laughs> and they take their pineapple beer and they pour it down the drain and they get rid of all yeast. Because what it had come to, to kind of represent or symbolize is that yeast represented the corrupting influence of stuff in our lives. And so the idea was to get rid of the yeast, at least for that week, to, to symbolically remove the things that would corrupt us and bring about this corrupting influence. That being said, let's turn, if you have a Bible this morning, to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to read what Jesus has to say about yeast this morning. Matthew chapter 16 from verse 5. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and they said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you of little faith, why are you talking amongst yourselves about having bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for 4,000 and how many baskets you, basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to God against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there, there, there are kind of three parts to this story this morning. 
there's the warning and confusion, then there's rebuke and consternation, and then finally a repeated warning and comprehension. You've ever forgotten your lunch at home? Did you ever do that at school? I did it quite often. I'd go to school and I'd be super excited at break time for my peanut butter sandwich and I'd go to my school bag and it's not there. And those are terrible days, aren't they? Because then you sit and you're hungry and you watch all your mates eat their black forest ham and cheesecake sandwiches and whatever else and you've got nothing. And there's always that one guy who's just like, oh please, can't I have a bite of your sarmi? And it's just, no. But you know, you sit there and you're going, now you've got to get through this whole day. I don't know if you remember those days. Uh, it gets worse. I don't know if you've ever done this. Forgot lunch for the whole family. Got to a picnic site and gone, where's the picnic? And your wife says, I thought you were bringing it. And you say, no, I thought you were. I don't know if you've ever done that. I mean, that that's like grounds for divorce right there, isn't it? Um, so so this, is, this is how it sometimes uh, goes with us. We get in the car and go down to see my folks. And we're up in Endeavour North. And we're halfway down the hill and Bernice will say, Did you remember to bring fill in the blank, right? The buri, the salad, the cake, the cool drink, the chips, the whatever it is, the flowers, whatever it is we're meant to bring. And my response is generally, no, I thought you were going to bring it. <laughs> and of course we are <coughs> entirely polite about this in the car with one another as we enter into debate and discussion <laughs> as to how to deal with this situation. Uh, I see some nodding. Uh, do we turn around and go home or do we keep going? My response tends to be, don't worry. No, neither of us are mature enough to say that. No, no. My response tends to be, don't worry, my father will provide. Right? But Bernice is all like, no, 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 we can't impose on your folks. We're going to have to stop at another shop. But there are no shops that are as good as our shops. Right? So it's always, so it's always a, bit of a bit of a thing. The debate goes on. The disciples have got into the boat. They're leaving the shore of Magadan, they're heading to the other side of the ocean or the lake, they're going to Gentile territory, they're going to arrive at Caesarea Philippi, that's where we'll be next week, which is once again not far from the Decapolis, the area of the Gentiles. Peter is feeling a little snackish, he goes rummaging and he can't find anything and he says, hey guys, who was supposed to pack the picnic? Andrew, it was your responsibility. And Andrew goes, no, no, I swapped duties with John. John was going to do it. And John goes, I, I spoke to Judas. He's the treasurer. He was going to go and buy the bread. And there's this argument, and there's a bit of blame, uh, you know, blame shifting and finger pointing as to whose fault it was that we don't have any bread. And while they're in the midst of this discussion and debate and argument, no, no doubt, subtle voice, you know, don't, don't upset the teacher. Jesus sticks his oar in and says, Beware, be on your guard against dodgy yeast. And Peter looks at John and says, You see, now Jesus is hungry and we've got no food to give him. Your fault. Because obviously, this is what Jesus means, right? They're about to land in Gentile territory and you can't buy bread from the Gentiles. Because their yeast is not as good as 
our yeast. Their yeast is unclean. Surely that's what Jesus is hinting at here, right? Hey guys, no bread. We can't buy from the Gentiles. Gentile yeast is bad for you. Their fungi is not as fun as our fungi, right? Jewish bread is what we need. So there's a problem. They have no bread. There is a warning. Watch out for bad yeast. And there is absolute confusion because the disciples have no clue what Jesus is talking about. They think he's giving them gears for not bringing lunch. I suspect that it's at this point that Jesus shakes his head and then issues this rebuke to his disciples. Because although they're in the boat, they've missed the boat. They think that this is all about bread and lunch and a picnic and Jesus is talking about something else all together. But first, he needs to deal with their, with their anxiety problem and with their fears about lacking lunch. And so he uses one of his favorite phrases when it comes to referring to the disciples. And he says to them, oh, you of little faith. Can I say that is not a term of endearment to the disciples? It's not the phrase that you want to hear from Jesus when he speaks to you. It's far better to hear Jesus say to you, Oh, you of great faith, right? You're a giant in the faith. That's what we want to hear. At the very least, we want to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You remember the bread. We want to hear that. But to hear him say, Oh, you of little faith. Now, it's always good, isn't it, when we're reading the Bible, when we're reading the Gospel stories, to remember the context of where we're at and what's gone before and what's going to come soon. Just recently, Jesus has referred to someone else and made mention of their measure of faith. Can you remember who that was? <coughs> uh, who? What? The Gentile woman, the Canaanite woman. Can you remember? What measure of faith she had? Great faith. She had great faith. Okay, well done, Bryce. So here's the thing, right? Two weeks ago, Jesus encounters this Canaanite woman and says she has great faith. And now he's in the boat with the disciples and says that they have little faith. It's interesting that in Matthew's Gospel, there are only two people who are referred to as having great faith. One of them is the Canaanite woman, and the other is a Roman centurion. It's not really what you'd expect, is it? I mean, if you had never read the Gospels before, but you knew something about, you know, religion and faith and so on, and, and someone said to you, what kind of people would you expect to have great faith? You would say, well, the pastors and elders, surely. The religious leaders, they would be the ones. The Pharisees and Sadducees, surely they would have great faith. But of course we know that they're the ones who have no faith. So then, option number two then, must be the disciples. After all, these are 12 guys who've been with Jesus for a year and a half, two years now. They've heard him preach. They've heard the words. They've seen what he's done. They've seen miracles performed. And in fact, Peter has even tried to exercise some faith and got out of a boat and sank, but he tried. And so you would think, well then, surely the disciples would have great faith. But the disciples have little faith. It's, it's more than the 
Pharisees, but it's still little faith. And the ones who are described as having great faith, the outsiders, the centurion and oppressor, the Canaanite woman, you remember her story? I mean, she's a woman to start with, which back then was terrible. <laughs> she's a Gentile, and Gentiles are generally called dogs, so she's a woman and she's a dog, just leaving that out there. Her heritage is idolatry. And her, her tribe has been made subservient to Israel for the last 2,000 years. So, just get this, right? The two who have great faith are the oppressor and the oppressed. We could do a nice political sermon on that right there. And consider some of those thoughts. It's the people who are outside and beyond the borders of God's kingdom and God's grace, whom Jesus declares the ones who have great faith. And the disciples who are in the in crowd who are there have little faith. There's of course another interesting parallel between the woman and the disciples, I don't know if you spotted, but it's to do with bread, isn't it? She has great faith and is happy to accept the crumbs that come from his table. The crumbs of grace are sufficient. They have little faith and they're wondering about where their date loaf is going to come from. Can I confess that sometimes, perhaps even most times, I'm a little bit more like the disciples? I'm sure that there are some here of great faith. But I think many of us struggle. I think there's a lot of us whose faith is often small. And in consternation, <laughs> Jesus shakes his head and says, and he points out to them how he's managed in the last couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months, how he's managed to feed 9,000 people with just a few scraps. How is it that with this evidence on display that the disciples are wondering about food for 13? Is Jesus saying, if I can figure out food for a couple of thousand, don't you think I can manage a little bit of lunch for 13 of us? Essentially, Jesus is saying to the disciples, don't you trust me? Don't you trust that I'm able to provide for your every need? Don't you remember the prayer that I taught you to pray, give us this day our daily bread? How much have you forgotten? I know. It's easy to say this. It's easy for me to say this on a Sunday morning standing here. God provides for your needs. And I think as Christians and disciples of Jesus, we would agree to that. We get it. We've probably said the same thing before. But I think that it's one of those things that's easy to say, but not always quite so easy to believe. And often, when things are a little bit tight, and you've gone rummaging in the kitchen and gone, oh no, we're out of bread. It's kind of hard in those moments to go, but God will provide. It's much easier to doubt. It's much easier to wonder. It's much easier to be of little faith. 
This year has been a hard year for a lot of us. Um, I know for many, income has been cut, salaries are down, some of you have had a salary, uh, what, salary freeze, some salary cut, some have seen your income reduced by 20, 30, 40%. And some of you are wondering, where is the next meal going to come from? You're wondering, <laughs> where am I going to get that loaf of bread? For some, even, even crumbs look a little bit distant. And it's easy for me to stand here this morning and say, God will provide. But it's true. He does. And He will. And it might not be as you want, or as you expect, or even as you hope. And that there are lots of moments where you'll go, why is He taking so long? What's He doing? Where's He gone now? And yet, in His loving providence, He provides for His children. And Jesus says to His disciples, don't you remember? Can I suggest the same words to you this morning? Don't you remember? Can you remember? Can you look back in those times, in those moments, last week, last month, last year, last decade? For some of you, last century. <laughs> Can you remember those times when He did provide? In fact, more than that, can we look back to the objective truth, those objective moments, not just my subjective experience, but the objective truth of Scripture where He tells us how He provided manna in the wilderness, how He provided water out of a rock, I provided a lamb for the sacrifice. I provided the lamb for your sacrifice. Oh, you of little faith. Let me remind you this morning, right? His mercies are new every morning. Do not forget, great is his faithfulness. His love endures forever. And you may feel that you have just a little faith, but He is bigger than your little faith. And His provision is not dependent on the size of your faith, which is such a relief. He is faithful even when our faith is small. And so once again, lift your eyes, look up. He has crumbs enough for idol-worshipping Canaanites. He has baskets of leftover grace for sinful Gentiles like you and me. His grace is enough. So having settled their minds on their immediate concern, Jesus reissues the warning. How do you not understand that I'm not talking about bread? Talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the disciples get it. The penny drops, comprehension sets in. Ah, oh, it's not about bread. He's talking about being on guard against the teachings of the religious leaders of the day. So, what are the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, we could take a while, um, several hours, but let me try and be brief. The Pharisees were those who loved the law. In fact, they, they loved it so much that they wanted more. 
And so they added to the law. There are 619 laws in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees considered that just a good start. Uh, just a starting point. We can move on from there. And so the Pharisees embellished and added to and increased the law. They were the religious fundamentalists of the day. And they measured your faith by determining, by, by checking out how many rules and regulations you managed to abide by. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. One of the big things was washing hands. How many of you washed your hands this morning? Did you all use hand sanitizer coming in? Just, you know, because we've got to check. Anyway. They loved just the more rules the better. And at one point Jesus says, he even says this, he says, you delight in adding burdens, placing burdens on the shoulders of your followers. And he says, I've come to take the burdens off. Grace has come to lift the burdens. Not place more on. The Pharisees were hypocritical, they loved titles, they loved money, they strained gnats while they swallowed camels, that's what Jesus says. They, they were all about counting the mint leaves to make sure we tithe every single every tenth leaf, but they then ignored the weightier things of the law, like justice for the oppressed. But these are the guys who just essentially just had to add to religion. More rules, more regulations. The idea being that if you do this, then God will be happy with you. The Sadducees were on the other side of things. Instead of being the, the self-righteous rule-adding fundamentalists, the Sadducees were a little bit more of the easy-going, somewhat elite liberals. And their calling, their job that they thought considered was to take away from the gospel. So instead, instead of adding rules and rituals, they subtracted. So these guys are both great mathematicians. The Pharisees add, the Sadducees subtract. See, the Sadducees, they took a look at the Old Testament and they said, only the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, everything after that, we will remove, we will subtract, we don't need the rest of the Old Testament. And so they considered only the first five books of the Bible to be from God. The rest, we need to take them away. So they're subtracting from the gospel. They then refuse to believe in the afterlife. They refuse to believe in any sense of God rewarding um, the righteous. There was no resurrection of the dead to look forward to. There were certainly no angels or demons. In fact, in many ways, they'd lost sight of all things spiritual. So you've got these two groups of people who are the religious leaders of the day, um, speaking on behalf of the people of Israel, one group who likes to add stuff to the gospel, and another group that likes to take things away from the gospel. And Jesus warns and says, beware of their yeast. Remember what we said right at the beginning, that yeast had come to represent a corrupting influence, and how you don't need a whole lot of it for it to impact the whole batch of dough. And that's kind of the sense that Jesus is giving here. That the idea of the Sadducees and Pharisees, they're adding to and taking from, uh, is a corrupting influence, and you don't need a lot of it to be corrupted by them. And so Jesus says, beware. And they're still among us today. We don't call them Pharisees and Sadducees anymore. But they're still in our midst. We still find that there are those who want to add to the gospel and those who want to take away from the gospel. There are those who, who love to add burdens on you and tell you all that you must do in order to get God to like you. 
and how you need to do stuff so that God will do stuff for you. It's about how much money you give and how many hours you pray. And it comes down to this kind of idea. I obey, therefore I am accepted. Here's how, how one preacher put it. He says, religion sees that we're sinners separated from God. That's a good thing about religion. Religion also sees that God is holy and that we're unacceptable in His sight. Which is again a great thing about religion. It's what that's exactly right. But then religion decides, we need to do something about this. Something needs to be done. And so religious leaders rise up and say, we'll make a list of rules. And we'll keep score. And then we'll teach other people how to keep score. And we'll decide what we'll teach them what to do. And they're all going to obey our rules. And then God will look down from heaven and God will say, these are the good guys because they obey the rules. And these are the bad guys because they don't. And God will then say, I'll save the good guys. That's religion. It's all about works. It's all about doing something. And that religion becomes an idol. Because it's the religion that I believe will save me. And we end up with this idea of God is obligated to me because I'm religious, I'm moral, I'm pious, I'm good. God, you have to love me. You have to save me. You have to forgive me because I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm better than the person on my left, right, whichever side you want. But that's not the gospel, right? That's corruption. And yet it sneaks in. And we have to fight it. We have to fight the sense inside of us that we must perform. Because I think that there's something, it's kind of, it's almost like it's built in inside of us. Our parents put it in there, behave or you won't get it birthday present. Behave or you won't get a Christmas present. Santa won't come unless you're a good boy, good girl. And so we have this whole thing of, you know, our, our obedience results in good things. And so we get this idea inside of us somewhere that God's delight in us is entirely dependent on our obedience. But the gospel is clear that his delight in us is based on the obedience of Jesus. There are those then on the other side who would love to subtract from the gospel, who would announce that Jesus didn't die as our substitute, but just died as a good example of a principled man, as a martyr. And we too should live principled lives and do our best to be good even when times are hard. There are enough preachers around the world today who, who will reduce the gospel by, by subtracting things from it. You don't need to repent of sin. No, that's not, that's not necessary. Or we'll remove from the gospel the very central focus of the cross. Because it's just too bloody, it's too messy, it's too nasty. Let's just focus on being nice and being good and being helpful. And Jesus' warning for us today is to be on our guard. And the question we've just got to ask is, what are the little bits of corrupting influence that might find their way into your hearts? Do you find your tendency is to add to or subtract from the gospel? Are, are you one of those who, who lives a life with this kind of thinking in mind? I obey, therefore I am accepted. Are you motivated by fear rather than by faith? Do you, do you obey in order to get things from God? Do you live with the sense of, I deserve better than this because God owes me? 
Do you find it easy to spot where others have gone wrong? If that goes some way to describing you, then you're adding to the gospel and you're working hard at a self-salvation project. Or do you find that you're on the other side, that you're going, ah, I'm not really that bad. I'm not really sure what I need to repent of. I know I mess up now and then, but you know, I'm not as bad as those other guys. I've just got to live my life and aim to be good. If that's you, then perhaps you're one of those who are subtracting from the gospel. It's, you've drained it of its life. And we need to heed the warning of Jesus this morning and hold on to the bread of life who calls us to repentance and faith, who lifts the burdens off so that we find that instead of saying, I obey, therefore I'm accepted, we find that we're saying, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. And we find that the image of the cross grows bigger and bigger before us as we constantly are seeing again and again our need for the cross. Instead of diminishing the cross and diminishing its power, we cling to it more and more because it is the only source of our hope. And you know what happens then when we neither add to or nor subtract from the gospel? We become people of great faith. Not something to boast about, but something that our faith is in place. Finally, our, play, our faith is in the right place on the cross and the grace of Jesus who lived and died for us. And when we go there, we find good bread, true bread, bread that's not infected by bad yeast, but rather bread that fills and satisfies. We find that crumbs and baskets are sufficient for all our needs, physical and spiritual. And so you, of little faith this morning, come and eat. Come and be fat filled. Come and be satisfied by the one who truly satisfies our every need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning we do confess that there are times when we are people of small faith. There are times when we're a bit like those disciples in the boat. We know the stories, we know that you fed 4,000, but we're not quite sure that you can feed four or five. We know that you alone satisfy, and yet we feel like the bread of life is not enough, and we, we think that we can add to it and end up with the pizza. Lord, forgive us for those moments where we want to add to the gospel and think that by um, adding on a bunch of rules and regulations, we can somehow be considered better in your sight. Forgive us of those moments when we subtract from the gospel, when we reduce it, when we see the need of the cross to be less and less, when we reduce the size of the cross, when we embark on our own self-salvation project. Lord, forgive us of those moments. Instill in us instead, O oh Lord, great faith, as we rest with certainty and surety in the cross and the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Not sure if you brought a flask this morning. Yes, Mark. Was it Jackie's birthday yesterday? Oh, Only if it's a Sunday. But what we'll do is we'll end the service and then we'll sing. Come on, let's go. One, two, three.